A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes, as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. That would be through chapter 50 of Brandon Sanderson's The Hero of Ages. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Welcome to Dry July. <laughs> yeah. We have so, taking a month off. Yep. All of our recordings in the month of July, we have decided to go non-alcoholic because, I don't know, figured it'd be a fun experiment. I'd like to lose some weight and be a little bit healthier. So I've got my gym membership. I've been going to the Y. Went on a 20-mile bike ride yesterday. Not drinking today. Going to be good. Going to be good yeah. for me, I think. You know, yeah. I, I think it'll be it's it'll be a fun turn. I, I think really the idea here is to reinforce some good habits that we were getting into and just to remove any hindrances that could possibly be here for a month. I think it's a good thing. And, you know, we'd even considered doing this back in... I think February we were going to do a dry month or March, but a combination of we had a bunch of guests on for short pours and we had a ton of kind of stuff culminating. And so we didn't want to short change anything that we were doing that way. But this is kind of a month to ourselves. So it felt right to, you know, take the month and and do what we will with it. So we appreciate you all following along. Our goal is to bring mocktails and some other drinks to light here. You know, before we start talking about that, before we start talking about our pathetic representation, today is our seventh episode discussing The Hero of Ages by Brandon Sanderson, and we are going to chat about chapters 44 through 50. But before we do that, PJ, as we're not drinking, what are you having today? I mean, I guess you are drinking it, but I'm eating a sandwich. I have some almonds. I'm just kidding. I made a latte, so I have that sort of so stovetop espresso maker thing. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Made some espresso and then just heated up some milk and frothed it to the point where I had half milk and half foam. Poured that shit together and then drank it before we actually started recording. So my back half beer, as it were, <laughs> is Culture Pop. It's a probiotic soda. It, it's much more of a lightly flavored seltzer than anything. It's, I mean, 40 calories for the whole can. It's orange, mango, chili, lime flavored. Yeah, it's it's tasty. It I liken it to those spindrifts, which I think is something that you have right now. So, it Crossley, is. what are you drinking? So, for those of you who don't know, I worked for a coffee company for about a year and so I become I became quite a coffee snob. I was already kind of a coffee snob. It's a problem. And so I make pour over every single morning. So I am having some counterculture coffee, the Apollo blend, which is a light blend. If you don't like light coffees, you're wrong. And I'll tell you why. So light blends actually have more caffeine than dark roasts. That is because they don't sit as long and they don't roast as long. And so part of the roasting process cracks the bean and that leaks the oils Oils are what contain a majority 
of the caffeine that you get from coffee. So the longer you roast, the less oils there are inside the coffee. So if you ever pick up a bean, you can see a crack generally. If you see two cracks, a double crack, that would normally be filtered out of most of these sort of higher end coffees or these third wave coffee companies. I'm going to shut up about this. I've clearly been caffeinated now by the by the coffee that I'm drinking, but it's really great. It's really great. But you got to extract it, right? Light roasts are bad if you don't do anything right with it. You have to actually treat it properly, which includes rinsing and, you know, it's a, it's a whole process. Mm-hmm. But it's my morning ritual. So here we are recording this in the morning and I'm doing that. My back half beer, as it were, is a grapefruit spindrift, which is my favorite. Spindrift in general is my favorite of the seltzer brands because... It's mostly just sparkling water plus a little bit of fruit. It's very simple. It's not meant to be anything else. They don't add any additives, nothing secretive. They're always, almost always zero calories with a couple of exceptions, such as the grapefruit, which is 17 calories because they have to add a decent amount of grapefruit juice. And they do add a little bit of orange juice to it to get you that citrus pop that you're looking for. So this is also what I was, I was going to try this this morning because I do have a pure in the fridge, but I wanted to do what Rob Hart had done on the show with kind of the, the Thai bitters and instead use grapefruit bitters with the pure and then compare the two, but maybe another time. Yeah. I like to do that. So, yeah. It tends to be my favorite way to do sparkling water. Mm-hmm. Totally. Okay, yeah. cool. So PJ, with that out of the way, before we talk about the chapters, how are you feeling about this week's reading? What was your, what was your vibe? Hmm. I don't know. I, there, there were reveals, a lot of reveals this week. So it felt very satisfying, I guess, to, mm-hmm. to read through it. Less, less things getting set up and more things get knocked over, which felt good. Yeah. Part of me, when I, when I went back and read this week's reading, I was like, why didn't I make you read 44? And then at the same time, I went, the reason I didn't make you read 44 is because it feels very cheap and even brandon kind of admits that with the way that he treats reen and the fact that the next chapter he rebuts this idea that reen is reen so i didn't want to you know linger in that for too long so i i i know that that's why i made this decision but i did seriously question it at the beginning of this week that's fair so that makes sense yeah, but that was that was a serious thought that I had. I, I really enjoy this re- week's reading because it does. It is it is starting to just knock down dominoes. As you think about this book, right? We're approaching the end. This is a trilogy. We can't set up that many more dominoes to have them pay off at this point. It's got to be kind of the bulk back catalog and we got to start paying everything off to make it worth it. So I think this is a definitely a turning point where it's like, okay, now things just have to start falling so that we don't have an infinite number of pieces, you know, on the jigsaw board. Yeah. It's not to say that everything gets resolved, but what makes sense? Is that what you said? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. Well, with that, we go into chapter 44. Starting off here, I love Vin's little trick with the guards and use and the use again of rioting and soothing. I feel like, especially early on, these metals were heavily underused and underrepresented among the alimantic capabilities. It's great to see brass and zinc really kind of in action here being used to like inflame an argument between, you know, these guards and like move them around inside of the scene. Yeah, I think that there's a good reason why it's underused. A couple of good reasons why early on it's kind of established that at a high level, it's really difficult to make it subtle 
and she's good at her luck right away at the beginning <clears throat> and being subtle with that, but she still gets noticed and it just gets more and more noticeable. Even Breeze is, he doesn't even try to hide it most of the time. He just kind of is, is soothing people throughout the entire mm-hmm. process. So making it subtle makes it a lot more difficult to use. And I think it's an inherently difficult thing to describe from a writing perspective and m- make it not feel like mind control, but still describe exactly how it's working. Ultimately, I think Breeze's symphony scene in the last book, where was that? That was in Mistborn in the first book was a great training ground in that respect, as far as writing some higher level soothing stuff. But Breeze is in like the perfect scenario where he's kind of hidden in a back room and working on all this stuff and has, it's been designed like the entire interaction has been designed around him doing that. It's not him out in the, in the open working, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think one of the other things to add in here is that a lot of this is also powered at least a little bit by Duralumin, right? So that's another reason that we don't really see it in the same way and not used as this sort of abject mind control in which it kind of is a little bit, it's not mind control here, but it's a lot more forceful than it was previously. And like you said, I think the symphony is a great example. I think even thinking about the way in well of Ascension that like, breeze can't help but like sue people as he walks by he's just always on and always helping with people's emotions it's yeah it and it is i i think it is also an inherently difficult thing to write and so as such i think he got better brandon got better at writing it as the series goes on naturally Mm -hmm. and presenting it so yeah it totally makes sense I, i definitely agree with you it's just it's it's nice to see so there's something lurking in the back of Vin's head, and we'll obviously we're going to talk about this more in a minute here as we get into kind of the idea. But Reen pops into her brain once again, asking herself, you know, what would my brother say now about how she's doing in life and reflecting on how he's protective of her despite being a poor kid in a bad situation. And, and just the general presentation of Reen shows up here as a, I think, like a harder, faster reminder of who he was to service what we go into in a minute. Yeah. Yeah, this reapproaching this with some hindsight changes things a little bit because mm-hmm. initially I really hadn't put a whole lot of thought into this interaction. But we really don't historically get a whole lot of Vin reflecting positively on Reen. We get once in a while she gets some memories and the revelations of what Reen actually did for her, stuff like that. So this could be an example of some growth by Vin. But I can't help but wonder if this is an instance of soothing from Ruin. Mm. And that's kind of affecting the way that she's thinking about Reen and getting sort of primed for this interaction. I, hmm. For me, I think it is more growth, more than anything else. I, I feel like it shows and presents itself as growth because she's mentally reflecting on it. And that is different than what we've been told ruin can do right ruin can't plant memories and be in your mind so can he though (laughs) well that is that is a follow-up question to that extent but that's what that's what i was saying like coming at this with a little bit of hindsight based on what we learn later Mm -hmm. on i don't know yeah 
Well, and, and that's that's a fair enough point and something that we can definitely get back into when we get there. I, I just feel like that this represents growth, I, I think, at least partially because she has adjusted her thoughts towards Reen and she she acknowledges the bad, but recognizes the the utility of what he was doing. And yeah. that utility being one of of love, even in its own sacrifice in the end to the obligators. We quickly go from this to Vin successfully distracting the guards that like we were talking about earlier, manipulating that soothing to get them kind of going against each other, soothing and rioting to flare that argument and falls right into a trap in the canton of resource. And that's a big, big old oof considering here. (laughs) That's some shit. Yeah, that sucks. But it's so masterfully done. Like Mm -hmm. it it is a perfect trap. Such a perfect trap. Yeah. Yeah. And it gives, I, I think it gives Yeoman a good chunk of like actual credit here too is, is the great thing. It, it shows that he is a master strategist and very intelligent about how he approaches the whole operation. Yeah. So we move from there to Ellen having a philosophical discussion with Yeoman. It's kind of nice to see, given these small chunks of the world and history here in dialogue and to get to kind of see the two of these, what would you say? What would you call them? The, the philosopher, I guess you could say practicing philosophers, whichever way you want to, leaders, kind of go at it. Even if it is all meant to be a distraction for Vin at this point. I do want to say, we, we've talked a lot about, I've talked a lot about philosophy through the lens of Red Rising and, you know, other other series and other books this feels a little surface level as far as like I like my philosophical discussions to be in books, especially because it is mostly used as a lens to present history, not necessarily to debate philosophy because they're debating in world things that we are unaware of and just not. Yeah, I mean, there's obvious there's obvious representation things that are here within kind of discussions around slavery and the enslavement of the sky and like what's what's that mean? But I want a little bit more. I just always so, want, I want to twist that knife. So does Ellen though. Ellen wants more. Yeah. Ellen wants to get deeper into all of this, but he can't because he's trying to balance the attention of Yeoman and the attention of the crowd and maintaining this distraction for as long as he can. So there's this really surface level hitting as many points as possible to keep them engaged. So I, I think Ellen would agree with you entirely on wanting something a little bit deeper. That's that's a fair point. Okay. I'll give you that. I'll give you this soft philosophy <laughs> as an exchange. All right. Fair enough. I think he even says that he wants to get into he it more. He does, but I wouldn't take that as an excuse from a writer's perspective if you want to talk about philosophy. You know what I mean? Like you have you've got the open plate. You can you can run with it. Yeah. Maybe it's a commentary on his audience as well well i don't i don't think it is because he you know at this point brandon didn't like have the audience that he has now but i know you know that said not everyone enjoys that in their fiction like i do so it's fine but yeah okay anyway i i think great point on he has to entertain the crowd because it definitely is something part of the reason that he isn't going in the directions that he wants to or like citing texts as much is because they start to lose people when they dive in on the like high level specifics. What do you think about kind of the way that this scene resolves with Ellen going for Yeoman to test if he was an Alamancer? Oh, it's a risk. <laughs> That's a risky fucking yes. thing. I think it was interesting that it was a very sudden decision, even from Ellen's perspective. Like mm-hmm. we've got his mind. We're understanding what he's doing, and it's still a snap decision, not even taking a moment to really 
wonder if he should trust his gut. There's there's a very slight pause where he's like, I want like, should I do this? But it it's almost instantaneous where he just kind of snaps and goes for it. He just makes the call. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. And he's he's like, this might be the last chance that I get to do this. And so there's also mm-hmm. that alternative of like, hey, and you know, to that regard, he reacts because he he's burning ATM and says that he's a mistborn. Do you think that to be the case? Well, now we know that it's possible to not necessarily have everything but this is kind of the situation that i had put forward before where we don't know or we haven't we haven't met a strict atm misting yet but i think that could be very well the case because there's Mm. no other there are no other signs that there are other metals being used at the moment and vin notes how i mean it was set up as a trap so maybe that's not a relevant argument, but how it doesn't seem to be manipulated by iron or steel pushing or pulling. So I think it's entirely possible that he could just be an misting. Yeah. And I, I don't know if we talked about this before, but it would be so expensive to test people to be an ATM misting. So the, the likelihood of them even knowing for the most part is, is null and void unless you had a very specific reason that you would have been given ATM to burn or a stockpile. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, cancel of resource. And in theory, you know, this is where the, the cash is supposed to be. So that all that all kind of lines up too. Yeah. Or yeah. Yeah. He he could have known from the, the get go that he was or from from before and had his own stockpile that he's been saving up. Oh yeah. Yeah, there's that too. I mean, he f- openly flaunts it too with the bead on his head. So there's yeah. there's something about that sort of representation of power where he's got that tied on a cord around his head. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> we end our perspective from Ellen with a letter informing him that Vin is trapped. We move back to Vin trying to break out when she's confronted with a ghastly visage of a ghost of her brother, Reen. Yeah, I was so sure for the <laughs> longest time that Zane was going to be Reen. So I was... <laughs> I was pretty ready for Reen to show up in a physical form, even if it's strictly a trick here. I wasn't that like I wasn't that surprised that there was a physical form of Reen because I had been prepared for it for a long time. Mm-hmm. That's fair. That's fair. It It isn't. That's the other reason that I didn't think that this was like a great place to end on is because I don't think it's it's not climactic and it's not anticlimactic, but it's somewhere in the middle where it's like. This is kind of these seeds have been planted for a while. Reen has been here the whole time in in the back of her head in this story. So it's like, you know, we've we've gotten to know him. Now it's just a matter of actually seeing this personification of him. And I think calling it a personification is probably the best way to address it before we we get into the specifics of, uh, of what's going on. So with that, we go into part four. We end part three and we go to part four. Beautiful Destroyer. I really like this part title just from the idea like it is so Coheed and Cambria that and maybe (laughs) it's just because it's on my brain, but it is. It's like this is just perfectly on the nose in that same way. And and I I really like it. And it, it is kind of a conflux of these ideas about what, you know, what's to come, maybe. Yeah. 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 Who's the beautiful destroyer? Is it all of them? everybody well and i think from ruin's perspective that we get a little bit later he thinks there's beauty in destruction 
and <clears throat> finds that to be the the way that everything the reason that everything matters so there's yeah it's it's interesting we'll definitely talk about that more when we get to ruin but i think that's that's a, at least partially a tie-in here yeah okay cool with that we go into chapter 45 we've got our logbook a man with a given power, such as an allomantic ability, who then gained a hemologic spike granting that same power, would be nearly twice as strong as a natural, unenhanced allomancer. An inquisitor who was a seeker before his transformation would therefore have an enhanced ability to use bronze. This simple fact explains how many inquisitors were able to pierce copper clouds. So that's what her earring is for. Yeah. yeah. I was I was so convinced that it was going to be ferrochemical in a way. This makes a whole lot more sense. And also leads to some more questions about the Lord Ruler and his medal because it's described as he has his ferrochemical bracelets and things and some of them are embedded in his skin, they say, in order to stop people from being able to pull on them, which is true and works that way, but I wonder if it wasn't strictly ferrochemical and if there were some hemallergical spikes in there as well mixed in yeah i mean that's that's a great point great question he knows i i think especially when we get into the plate and kind of that whole reading that we get with him kind of recanting that's been in each of these rooms right each of these these basements which is why vin has it memorized despite feeling the whole thing that's when we get into maybe some of those complications where maybe he he was aware he was very aware of the power of hemology we even kind of get that from our our narrator the hero of ages which is just mm-hmm. how i should be referring to them i don't know why i've been calling them the the narrator because in reality they're you know they're the hero of ages right yeah hmm. that said this earring it makes me wonder about the mechanics of the spikes in general because there mm-hmm. are times when she doesn't have it in and it's such a small spike so hypothetically, that would mean it would leak power very quickly. Or is it only leaking immediately until it's embedded in someone and then it stops leaking altogether, even if they take it out? I don't know. Also, the prospect of killing somebody with that with that earring in order to like imbue it with power makes me wonder if it's maybe possible to like shear off parts. Hmm. Of a spike. Like shear off parts of a spike? Yeah. And maintain power that way. I don't know. A lot of sort of mechanical questions. Going off the presumption that that spike is exactly what's giving her the power described in this logbook entry. I want to feed into something that I know we talked about a little bit offline the other day regarding Zane. You had a note that you talked about to me about Zane when you called me the other day. Oh, yeah. So he's got that spike, and I think it would be safe to assume that it'd be steel because of his ability to levitate. Yeah, I think I think that feels like a safe assumption, you know, and I don't mean to like stretch here, but as the book starts to confirm these things, it's just like I, you know, I don't want to I don't want to go. Here's the thing. I don't want to go to until the end of the story to have some of these things that are planted here be fully confirmed. They will be confirmed for you. I mean, I'd rather they are. But you came to you came to this on your own terms, which is important. And I just want to make sure that you got the moment to to kind of say that and espouse your your theory, your statement. Be right. Uh, yeah, to be right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you That's weren't fair. right to begin with. You you just thought he was a stronger Alamancer, but yeah. <clears throat> 
Yeah. I don't know. Totally. Okay, moving on. First off, I love Sanderson's use of the term fitful lantern light here. And it's mm-hmm. as though it's like spasming very gently on the ground behind behind ruin here. I, I think it's great, of course, that we go right into this and we we see, you know, this whole thing. But I love that little description. Yeah. I mean, that's when you think what you think of, or at least that's what I think of when I imagine a dark cave and like a suspenseful scene of of people walking in a dark cave. It's always flickery. It's not like a just straight lantern light. <laughs> that or torchlight that it probably typically gives off it's always that sort of flickery dramatic characteristic that yeah is being evoked here it and it makes the whole thing more spectral like it 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 adds to this like very i i think in particular this is such a great example of how a couple of words can be so easily skimmed over and skipped over and you could totally miss out on the description of the scene here but this adds the sort of cinematic presentation of this ghost in the cave, this dark cave with like the spasming light there on the ground. And it's just it's just great. I love it. Mm-hmm. I love it. Thank you, Brandon. So this version of Reen raises many, many questions, and many of them are simultaneously answered as we go through this chapter in the same way that Brandon didn't want to mess with our heads for, you know, for us too long here. I didn't want to mess with yours, kind of like I said. But what did you make of Reen being ruined for potentially a very long time? I mean, you know me and my sort of tendency to get a little bit meta with my answers. So heads up, I'm going to do that again. <laughs> but Vin makes it pretty obviously clear that this doesn't fall perfectly in line with the rules as we have set forward with us. And it's impossible that everything that Reen has said in, in the past is strictly from ruin because of the mind reading thing. And that seems like a, a point of clear, like misdirection or misunderstanding of the rules from Vin's perspective. But at the same time, I don't think it's necessarily a problem, even within this rule set, because it was described that Ruin very specifically picked out a few people to influence and to kind of keep marks on. So even even before she knew that she was a Mistborn, she was working as this sort of street urchin with Reen, Ruin could have witnessed all of those interactions and had could have known everything about Vin's perception of and interactions with Reen to the point where Ruin would be able to emulate that in Vin's mind. Yeah. And I, I think that's kind of what she's alluding to, right? Is this, this given or understanding based on the perspective, kind of like you're saying of the rules, her understanding is that, yeah, this, this thing has been following her around for a lot longer than originally thought. But she also says that it couldn't have possibly all been ruined because it's in her mind. Oh, because I I think she's saying because it reacts sometimes to to her thoughts and sort of gives, gives different responses to just things that she's thinking. And that's where I think it's clear to me that they don't have all the rules correct and he is able to influence minds and is able. i guess my ask to you and maybe this is this might be personal but i don't know i don't know how your self-talk goes but when you're when you're like talking yourself i 
this is so this is such a strange thing to like pick at but with with myself when i'm like picking at something that i think i've done poorly or that i could do better it is like people going back and forth and like talking to each other and one's generally demeaning and one's like well you tried that and you do this and blah 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 yeah but um, whose voice is that in often you know i don't i, is that I guess i've own listened voice? Or I, I is it I, is it a disembodied voice of somebody I'm not else? Paying attention. <laughs> because I, I I'm think not that's attention to myself. I think that's something completely different because this is clearly Reen's voice speaking in her mind. Sure, not just sure. sort of the echoes of things that. But if you had a traumatic, if you if you had a very traumatic experience with someone of whom I can imagine this is kind of my my stretch here, right? Like I can imagine the her her devil on her shoulder internally or angel and devil on her shoulder internally is her brother because he was a devil in real life okay i can see that yeah i'm not i'm not saying that you're you're full-on wrong or anything i'm just saying like you know that's i i feel like that's a very real reaction my my self-talk voice i think is myself because i'm an egotist but you know i don't know if I've never heard of anybody's self-talk be any, like, I, I've never heard somebody describe it as somebody else's voice. Mm. That's fair. Yeah. Sweet. So I don't think so, it's because you're an egotist. That's just well. true. <laughs> I mean, separate facts. That's fine. I love that we track the pulsing here too like as well it's the same kind of thing the same pulsing that Vin felt at the well but then once she calls it what it is and it of course being Reen and Ruin he switches and begins to espouse his intent and purpose here. What do you make of our villain monologue? You know, as much as it kind of is here, it's not, it's a conversation, but you know, it's kind of a monologue. Um, what do you make of this sort of espousing of intent? I think it's an intriguing prospect. Mm-hmm. So the idea that ruin is less of this malicious entity and more of a natural process which has been held at bay for too long and kind of needs to catch up. I think there might be some middle ground there. It, ruin is a force of nature, but can't act unilaterally. Needs to have this working in conjunction with preservation in order to achieve to achieve the proper balance. And I think thinking about this more specifically in the context of ruin being one of the driving forces of life, there is no progression or creation. It is ruin and then preservation. So it is maintain and destroy and then life and production and evolution happens naturally out of those processes. So there needs to be this decay in order to make room for natural growth. And preservation is what allows that growth to happen without decaying itself too quickly i i really like that sort of idea of balance and this idea of natural forces not including evolution or progression but the the two actual forces being sort of destruction and maintaining yeah no follow-up okay cool it was that was and in that i mean like that was a great way to put it and I mean, strictly no words, but I, I, I think that you've you've hit the nail on the head as to why I think that these two 
godly entities are so interesting and fascinating inside of the story. It's what really gives it a very interesting touch to the world and even even the kind of ideas behind it. So, yeah, love it. I think it can also apply it to uh, to society and the fact that ruin has been dormant or kept at bay for so long. So everything has been under the influence of preservation. So as we talked before, culture hasn't changed in a thousand years. Fashion hasn't changed. And we've attributed that to the Lord ruler and things that he's been imposing on people. But it's entirely possible at this point that there was nothing driving the destruction of anything and therefore nothing driving the need for evolution. Yeah. One one power really outweighing the other in the world. And that's mm-hmm. that's how you get this thousand year, you know, stopgap uh, or like air gap, basically, of of improvement mm-hmm. because nothing, nothing decayed. So there was nothing to improve against necessarily. Yeah, what, what is it? Innovation is born out of necessity. Yeah. Necessity yeah. and resource, low resource, something like that. I think there's there's a there's like a short quote and then there's a full quote and it's yeah. Or what? What is it? Necessity is the mother of creation, or of mother invention? of innovation. Innovation. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Totally. Cool. All right. So that's it for chapter forty-five. Our little confrontation with ruin. There. Anything else that you wanted to say? We get more in kind of the the logbooks here about ruin, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's just. Sure. I think we can. I, I think we have enough to talk about going forward. That's. We'll be able yeah. to circle back. That's fair. So I'm uh, moving into chapter 46 logbook here. Rune's escape deserves some explanation. This is a thing that even I had a problem understanding. Rune could not have used the power at the Well of Ascension. It was a preservation, Rune's fundamental opposite. Indeed, a direct confrontation of these two forces would have caused the destruction of both. Rune's prison, however, was fabricated of that power. Therefore, it was attuned to the power of preservation. That very power of the well when that power was released and dispersed rather than utilized it acted as a key the subsequent unlocking is what finally freed ruin yeah so this very clearly debunks my theory that there's two wells or not entirely but mostly mostly breaks that down along with i think it's another logbook later on talking about this whole deal but anyway for the most part, that theory has been cut cut down at the knees. There is something that's sticking out in my mind that I'm kind of curious about. And that's sort of the idea that allomancy is of preservation and hemallergy is of ruin. But hemallergy seems to induce allomantic power. So is that still of preservation or is that strictly separate and they produce the same results but just come from different sources i think it's important to remember that hemology steals so that's that's the capability and because the all can everyone contains a little bit of preservation like we got last week as this description it's just stealing and accumulating so it, it would steal allomantic capabilities meaning it is of ruin gotcha okay yeah cool yeah because they are ruins they're using ruins power it's it's as though it's captured in something right so that power has been taken into something else and so it's been made into a it's 
because it's been captured by ruins power it is ruins power but it is a representation of preservation's power does that make sense yes i mean you could do a lot of shit with hemalurgy is the point yeah yeah so it's it's great to see that breeze and says shift their opinion on spook over the course of this week's reading confronting this idea that the child has become a man i think is huge for him and the way that they kind of build him up and huge for his personal growth on all fronts i i do of course want to just pick at the fact that breeze here in the beginning and even spook is like a little leery of this idea of even comparing spook to kelsier but they get over that in a chapter so yeah i think similarly this is kind of a huge deal for says and breeze themselves says specifically he's been in this really weird place so recognizing a positive change and having that on his mind could be really good for him i think yes totally I, I definitely think it's really good for him. I think it's a great, great turn because it is it's the beginning of Sazed kind of coming out of this depressive shell. And it's not to say that he solved it or anything, but it is his beginning to unravel that a little bit and try to pick at exactly why he is. And this all started last week when Breeze confronted him on the idea of, you know, would Tindwell want you to do this? She wouldn't want you to be this way. You know, that's that's where this begins. So. After leaving that conversation, I appreciate Sazed's turn to focus on religion once again to make progress on this journey he wants to go through. So he picks up a religion, that of Trell and the Nelazan people, that I think is really interesting because it's based on in like a quasi-scientific theory approach as opposed to a culture that led with its doctrine and that is defined by the doctrine first. It makes for something really interesting, and I love the description of it being kind of whimsical here too. Yeah. Have we been exposed to Trell? Yes, yes, it was the it's the stars. It's the thousand stars in the sky because they're focused on astronomy. Right. So I think it was in the first book is when we're originally exposed to it. Yeah, I think it was to Kelsier, one of the one of the religions he pitched to Kelsier. Yes, Um, I think so. That said, there are some comments that seem so very pointed from Branderson in this section. And that's this specifically. What good was a religion without answers? Why believe in something if the response to half of his questions was ask Trell and he will answer? And I mean, that's just kind of most modern religions in general. Anything with sort of a deity at its core kind of deals with that central sort of thing. So I'm assuming we'll see Sazed sort of go down a redemption path of sorts and let him sort of embrace the unknown and unanswerable to a certain extent. Yeah. And I think that's why I bring this up here is because this is the reason that I think says it also even says that he himself gravitated towards it is because like in that he liked this one so much is because it has this kind of blanket approach, right? It has a more open-ended approach. And I think that's also what Breeze is trying to pick out a little bit later here in the next chapter where he confronts him on the religion thing a little bit more strictly and sort of this idea of the knowledge that he contains. I think this is what he's really trying to get at is like it's not about having all the answers. It's about having one potential set of answers mm-hmm. and then confronting and using that to adjust. It's 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 a fascinating conversation, which is why I wanted to point it out here. So. We move from there to Spook confronting Beldra, and man, does this not go the way that he wants it to. He is kind of this, you know, I mean, he's a kid, right? We don't want to, we don't want to necessarily, I mean, I guess he's an 18 year old or 17 year old at this point, but he's, he's young and I find it 
very interesting that he starts off with a really assumptive foot by basically espousing all of his thoughts. He's like, here are all the facts. Here's my conspiracy theory brain working at overdrive. Here are the answers. And, you know, that's a very youthful thing to do to assume everything and then to put that on someone else and be like, this is the way you're behaving the way that you are. Before Beldra calls him a simplistic fool and calls the guards with a scream. Yeah. There is just so much optimism and confidence uh-huh. there. It's so clear that this is a teenage boy in his mm-hmm. logic. Like he's a, he's a smart kid, but fuck dude. Like that is exactly <laughs> how a teenage boy thinks. When yeah. He, when he knows he's right. Right. And that was just, for me, it was just like, oh man, dude. And the other part of this to think of and remember is that like she, sees him as this like almost sort of superhero-y person so if we think about the other perspective from beldra she is seeing this guy who's like jumped out of a building with a kid like save these people actively working to undo these things she's got this almost like superhero perspective and in a way should kind of be afraid because he seems super capable and you know very mysterious in a similar way to kelsier from the outside yeah like that's that's what he's building up. So why would he expect her? You know, it's it's just a funny conflict of expectations here between the two of them. Yeah. Yeah. So we go <sighs> back to Stazid and his metal minds. And for me, writing, even trying to write this question, it was a mess. So I just want to I'm just going to kind of go and then we'll deal with it. But we go back to Stazid and his metal minds, reflecting on when he last used them and reflecting on their many uses. He also states that there are only 50 religions remaining and feels like he shouldn't use the metal minds that it would be kind of breaking his oath, despite all of kind of the ideas. I really appreciate after the internal conversation, how Breeze intervenes and really pushes on him and on why he isn't using them as the last of the keepers. This is kind of an important thing. And says it even recounts to him before he's pressed further by Breeze. I'm probably the last of the keepers. The thoughts in these metal minds will die with me. And at times I can, I can't make myself regret that fact. This is not an era for scholars and philosophers. Scholars and philosophers do not feed starving children. This I think is a great point, especially as we think about Ellen in the same time. And this is the same sort of conclusion that he's came to. Yeah. So a, a few different things in yeah, this mess there's a question, lot. as you said, <laughs> paragraph, <laughs> he's somehow still this sad boy character, but he's more nuanced about it. If that makes sense, we get some insight into why he's acting the way that he is. And he starts to break that down a little bit, too. And he starts allowing some concessions to the promises that he's made for himself because he felt like he should make those promises to himself. And at the very least, those those thoughts and those driving promises are at the forefront of his mind. But I'm hoping that he's going to start seeing that that line scholars and philosophers do not feed starving children is just false with this respect because he is the only one with the means to go through this sort of engineering process for the, for the waterways and will ultimately save a lot of lives. Maybe not feed starving children explicitly like he's saying, but he could given the things that he knows like he he needs to maintain this knowledge 
because this knowledge is what drives society forward. Yeah, he's totally proving himself wrong. And I think that's kind of the the thing here over the course of the week, I should say, right? Like he's he's proving the utility and the futility of his previous position as Spook pushes him to actually wear these and do the things starting. I mean, right now it's it's him blowing up that meeting and pushing on Saza to really kind of use that information, right? To fill the street slots with water, like you're saying, that's. That's the whole purpose is to be like, hey, man, you're. You're a repository for a lot of things. You're the last keeper, probably. And we have to ensure, you know, you have this information. Use it instead of just sitting on your thumb and, you know. Yeah, imagine if he had just decided not to. (laughs) Yeah, right. Stuck his head in the sand and really, like, mm -hmm. just was obstinate about it. I I think we'd be in a much more dire place. Yeah. In general, right. I think I think Sazed doing this is a morale boost for Breeze and and is, all Rianne. Yeah, and all Rianne because she is there and matters, I guess. <laughs> I fucking hate her. I really don't like <laughs> Just that character. Don't <laughs> I mean, I know Lindsay does too. That was that was what she was alluding to, but like I like all Rianne. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> fine. I can't even yeah. like really nail down why i don't like her i I think i could probably like i just i don't know i don't trust her and i (laughs) i don't feel like she's done anything to earn that trust fair really yeah the whole like tricking her dad into like doing the right thing to save breeze yeah and everyone else I think she says something like breezy. I bought you. I did as best as I could or or something like that in her like to herself. Right. To that point, though, she's working in the best interests of breeze is working in the best interests of the crew in that moment. Like, I, I mean, as a side, it's not effect. just breeze. I don't know if that's the intent, because I think if she really wanted to, she could knock breeze out. And, like, drag him on a horse. And, like, he wouldn't be able to do anything. You know what I mean? Like, he would be... He'd be fine. Yeah. I think he's trying... She's trying to do right by Breeze and his his kind of choices and actions and what he wants to stand for. It's fine. cool. <laughs> this is just another <laughs> sticking point inside of this book. <laughs> that and the fucking dress. Okay. So, chapter 47 here. We've got our... First long book of the week. Nice long log book that takes up most of a page. So. Rune's prison was not like those that hold men. He wasn't bound by bars. In fact, he could move about freely. His prison, rather, was one of impotence. In terms of forces and gods, this meant balance. If Rune were to push, the prison would push back, essentially rendering Rune powerless. And because much of his power was stripped away and hidden, he was unable to affect the world in any but the most subtle of ways. I should stop here and clarify something. We speak of Ruin being freed from his prison, but that is misleading. Releasing the power at the well tipped the aforementioned balance back toward Ruin, but he was still too weak to destroy the world in the blink of the eye as he yearned to do. This weakness was caused by part this weakness was caused by part of Ruin's power, his very body, having been taken and hidden from him, which was why Ruin became so obsessed with finding the hidden part of his self. So this is this is just more confirmation and more clear understanding of what these godly beings are, as described early on, I think maybe in the first book, maybe the second, I can't remember what, talking about, or maybe it was even like at the beginning of this book. I don't know. Previously, previously on Mistborn, it was described <laughs> as the power of a god and the body of a god are the, are the same thing. 
Mm -hmm. So this feeds into that even more. And so basically ruin is looking for his body and looking for his power. And that's, that's the deal wherever, wherever preservation hit it. I still think within human humanity in general, but we'll see. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. And I I mean, there, there are some things to work out here, right. From this kind of idea, but I, I think an important part to say here is that like this idea that, this is how Ruin was able to influence Vin despite being locked in the well, right? Is because he wasn't completely trapped. He, I mean, he was mostly like he couldn't do a whole lot, but he could exert some influence. And we get even more specific information on that with the chapter 51 logbook entry this week. Um, yeah. What was, the, do you have that one written down? I forget if it was yeah. long or not. Yeah. Yeah. You have it written. Yeah. So, so yeah, rather maybe it's 50. Yeah, no, sorry. It's chapter 50's logbook, not 51, which is, you know, this idea that he was very cautious and careful and approached things very methodically to pull off what he was trying to pull off. Mm-hmm. All right. So with that back to chapter 47, this is a pretty quick chapter. There's, there's not a ton to talk about, but we go to Ellen spending some time worrying about Vin and Yeoman. Ellen is interrupted in his thoughts about Vin in the mist by set who really flashes a moment of emotional honesty talking about the likelihood of Vin's survival. Um, okay. I feel weird about this section because of the way that Ellen approaches this and how starkly different it would have been if Vin was there. Mm -hmm. Like if the tables were turned because she very obviously, I feel like would have done whatever to run and save him, especially considering how everything backfired the last time she tried to like go against her instinct to save him and like do, do good by the rest of the world and the rest of humanity. And it just fucking backfired. So I don't think she'd give up that opportunity again. And he seems to be not doing the same thing specifically, but it's a similar sort of, idea like he's just given up like he's resigned the the idea that he can just run in and save her directly and is just like i can't i can't do anything about this i i think it also speaks to their difference of utility as mistborns vin's utility would be a rescue mission like a an abject risky rescue mission because she could pull it off probably comparatively ellen is still a novice but he's a really he's like a sledgehammer novice (laughs) in a way because he's got these like incredibly more powerful and you know the the base elementic abilities at a much higher level so Mm -hmm. yeah i i think that this is in in our own characteristic way like we're we're assessing this ellen in this moment is more like well he's he's leaning into his strengths i think that's the way to look at it is he's his strength lies with command and Mistborn is kind of a secondary trait nature. Yeah. So that makes sense. Yeah. So he brings up, uh, he being set also brings up another interesting note that of loyalty being the basis for command and how he looks up to Ellen for what he's managed to accomplish. What is, what a sweet old asshole, you know, like a, it's, a, it's kind of a nice little moment. Yeah. Set's tune is changing a little bit here. It's, He's always thought of Ellen as a good person, but has never thought of him as a good leader because of him being a good person. And now he's starting to really notice where those good person traits 
can be utilized. And how am I trying to say this? What's well, I? You know I what I'm trying like to a, say? Yeah, yeah. I, I think of it like a waterfall. Like here's here's our complications, and here's like here's the long term effects of being a good leader of whom doesn't demand respect through fear, but commands it through you know doing the right thing more often than not. And that's kind of the the trickle down. I hate that using that term here, but uh, that's kind of the trickle down of what he's seeing. And so over time, Seth's been convinced that this is a good call because he has to do less to rein in people and sees difference in action where people underneath him would not have listened the same. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of the, the trickle down, I hate trickle down leadership. I hate that, but you know, it's fine. But the trickle-down leadership doesn't go as well as we think. There's a mistfallen incident with Demu and Bilg. And Bilg is that guy that fought Demu in the cave all the way back in book one when Kelsier was influencing him. What'd you make of the infighting among the army and Ellen's decision to send them away to Luthadel as well as to execute the this a-hole, Bilg, who started that fight by punching um, his general? So... Somehow that decision seems right. And I feel like it's still going to come back and bite him in the ass. But in the moment, it feels like the right decision. I'm not sure where that faction will go, but I don't think they'll ever get reintegrated. And maybe not even in a positive way, but they'll they'll diverge. Like I'd go as far as saying that I could see this becoming an adversarial sort of potentially. Like it just it's outcasts dealing with outcasts exclusively and it, it it can just become an echo chamber and it become problematic and who knows where that will like they don't have anybody leveling them checking them outside of like people in the exact same boat as they are so i could see that becoming a problem down the line but in the moment there's more complication in the moment. There's more complication because mm-hmm. of this decision to execute this guy as, and, and it's, it's the proper punishment that was set forward. But at the same time, it was done to send a message. And that message was to not fuck with your, your fellow, like don't, don't attack a superior first of all. But the idea that infighting won't be tolerated but simultaneously you're just separating all the people that are sort of the cause of this infighting could that breed resentment among the group like what what's going to happen there like what is going to happen to morale on both fronts i don't think is in a stable place and could potentially go bad pretty quickly yeah i think that that's a great assessment of where we're kind of left right is that this is this is a very difficult decision that has that is made and one of the the things that i find i I don't want to say disheartening but like a little bit kind of an unfortunate side effect of the position that we're in is it feels like it is the best move but it doesn't feel like the move that even ellen wants to make right and i'm not saying from the execution standpoint he doesn't want to make the execution but he understands that it's necessary i think sending them away is something that he wouldn't do if he weren't facing kind of all the circumstances he is and penrod does need assistance like he is doing the right thing as well for the the empire on the whole but at the same time he's also creating a potential line or division there and reinforcing it by by making the separation 
Yeah. I think we made comment, or at least maybe you and I made comment about it off air. I'm not sure when Ellen executed Josties, but mm, there was mm-hmm. sort of a Ned Stark sort of vibe to it. And yeah. this execution feels even more like that. But like you're saying, it's it's the best move, but it's not a good move. Like mm-hmm. there's no good moves here. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a tough call to make. I did want to just add a little kind of note, appended note to the end of this. If you listen to the audiobook, typically audiobooks are just done, you know, with the kind of initial final draft handed off there. This was something that Brandon actually changed between drafts, meaning, sorry, between publications rather than printings. So in the very first draft, Ellen says his says it isn't Bilg, it's Brill, but that's because he doesn't really know the dude's name. And so it's supposed to be kind of like a off kilter but you're supposed to know that it's him because they have the history and the way that he's described they actually did change the name from brill to bilg just to make that more clear in the second printing so reading it you see bilg uh, listening to it you you hear brill okay i think just to give that connection that's too much of an obfuscation that's why i think he tried to make it more abject more clear so with that we go into chapter 48 here we've got our logbook Once freed, Rune was able to affect the world more directly. The most obvious way he did this was by making the ash mounts emit more ash and the earth begin to break apart. As a matter of fact, I believe that much of Rune's energy during those last days were dedicated to these tasks. He was also able to affect and control far more people than before. Where he had once influenced only a few select individuals, he could now direct entire Coloss armies. So those last days is a fun development because we get some direct (laughs) talk about what's being done. And that paired with a previous logbook talking about the end of the world and how it brought the end of the world, um, makes me feel like that was a lot more literal than what I initially chalked it up to be. I don't know if I can go into farther detail of what I'm thinking here. Like you don't have anything more to connect on. No, I have more to connect on, but I don't think I should bring it up because it deals with Elantris. Don't here's, here's an issue that we're going to start to run into with Cosmere connected novels. And this is why I did in theory want to save Elantris until after we were done. However, it just fit into the schedule really well. All right, give, here's what we're going to do. Listeners of whom are listening to this live. This is what we sometimes do. PJ, we're going to clap. You can go through it. We'll determine at the end if we keep it, and then we'll clap back. Sounds good. Okay. All right. So if this section makes it in, this is strictly sort of... Elantra spoilers. Elantra spoilers. It's quick. It's not a whole lot, but we know that there's sort of a portal, presumably, through the wells between Elantris. What's the what's the name of that planet? Nalthus. Nalthus. Or Cell. Yeah. Cell, whatever. That planet and Scadriel. Mm-hmm. And talking about the end of the world and knowing that there is a portal potentially back the other direction means that it's conceivable and my current working theory that this hero of ages is no longer no longer on Scadriel because Scadriel doesn't exist anymore. Mm. And they're in cell. Okay. Or a different planet. Nalthus. Whatever. Sure. But they have 
taking a portal away from Scadrial, and then it ended. Okay. I don't I don't think that's wild. I think from a writer's perspective, that would be a little Deus X, a little it Deus Ex, Deus X for the uh the story, but on the Cosmere side, you know, anything's yeah, possible. It's it's just making it seem less of a hyperbole to call it the end of the world given that we're Mm -hmm. talking about fracturing the internals of the planet and expanding the uh, the reach of the ash mounts like it feels apocalyptic in Mm -hmm. the most like real way the most literal sense yeah it's and the hero is definitely not downplaying that whatsoever they are absolutely leaning into that here Mm -hmm. So, so that's what i had okay Cool. Cool. So we spend time in this chapter with Vin here working out her specific thoughts on what and how exactly Rune had been able to manipulate her and potentially others as well, including Zane from the Well of Ascension. What do you think of these reveals? I think this stack, like this stacks on Mm -hmm. more of the information that we've been given and thoughts on his power and how limited it actually is and choosing very specific people to influence we're taught we talk at one point about the timeline of gods i think that's later again in in a later logbook we've referenced it a couple times now but the the timeline of gods and how precise things have to be but with such a a long timeline it's entirely possible that he had his influence had been on vin from birth basically from the point of knowing that she was this powerful being and powerful alamancer and had so much potential. So I don't know. It's, it's just more evidence stacking on top of each other about like how interconnected everything is. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that to your point on this all stacking together, that final log book, you know, basically communicates to achieve such things. He apparently began with people who already had a tenuous grip on reality. Right. And Zane fits that fits that description because of the abuse he had experienced and lines up perfectly with with the type of person that he would lean into. So that's working off of that. That would assume that ruin came after that as opposed to like at birth. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I understand. So, right. Yeah. That I don't know. Either way, early, mm-hmm. early influences. So waiting in this cave, she was looking for something new, but instead stumbled into something old, something we haven't been able to fully read before. Text, the final text from the Lord Ruler. What did you think of this full metal plate inscription that we get here? We got, we've got, we gotten a couple of different pieces of it, really just the beginning, because they're like, oh, this is the same one we read last time. But this time, she gives us all the words. For one thing... He talks about voices, mm-hmm. not voice, but multiple voices, plural, which is, I mean, either I'm reading way too far into it and it's just kind of the way that he's speaking, or it's something much more complicated than what we've been dealing with so far. I think it's maybe possible that preservation has a voice as well that was influencing Lord Ruler and there was sort of a conflict and balance there. It it does give more credence to the idea that the Lord Ruler was strictly and very, very strictly thinking about the best way to preserve the world from extinction at the hands of ruins as opposed to properly leading his people. And like basically just strictly 
saying like, I'm not going to concern myself with my constituents at all because this is way bigger than them. And that is abject apathy, but is it malice is an interesting sort of thought to go down. I, I, and that great point. I think that the only example that you can really point to that feels malicious happened near the beginning, right? When he was, when he was still Rashek who'd picked up the powers and hadn't really grown to become the Lord ruler. That sounds weird to say, but with, when his mind became enlightened, one of the first things he did is he like whipped out and punished people, right? Like that's with his godhood. He created the ska seemingly from the Kleni people, most likely from the Kleni people as this sort of way of getting back at them for what he perceived as slights and then also proceeded to slight his own people for fear of them coming for the the power or explaining what he was doing which right. would have undermined him and his goal to preserve you know the world and kind that makes for a much fucked. more it's super <laughs> fucked. it makes for a very very complicated first book in terms of voices. The way that I think about this is that if Reen or not Reen, Reen Ruin has a, a thousand years with the Lord Ruler <laughs> because he's hemologically impaled, which we assume is where the voices are coming from, right? Because he's got the spikes in him, or like you were kind of saying, the rings earlier. The voices to me feel like ways of manipulating guilt, right? And like trying to turn in the same way that like the book is the Elendi's journal is manipulated in theory or could have been manipulated. I just have this feeling of the sneaking suspicion that ruin in this, in these moments was likely pushing on his emotions by representing the people that went up that mountain with him or representing like his father being, you know, upset at him or, you know, whatever, any number of examples. And I, I think of that as voices as different angles to try to manipulate. That makes sense. Yeah, like it's all it's all ruin, but ruin taking on different right characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I I feel like that's the move, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Vin focuses in on one bit of text from the plate text from the very bottom. I have hidden his body. Well, what do you think that this could be pointing towards? And this is a hundred and ten percent of prediction. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So what we were talking about before, how Ruin's body is missing, and we had been, or at least I had been, attributing it to, and Ruin, I think, is attributing it to preservation, Mm -hmm. hiding it from him. But this, I guess, kind of points to the idea that this was the Lord Ruler's doing. And maybe it was the Lord Ruler acting as a conduit through which preservation's will was being done. But I don't know. If we're going to ignore exactly the conversation that we just had about all the voices being of ruin, (laughs) we could assume that preservation was influencing the Lord Ruler and directing him how to hide Ruin's body. I don't think it's mutually exclusive to say that preservation couldn't have had a similar effect. I, I, I don't think that we have anything textually to say that preservation wouldn't be doing something similar. So, right. I'm not going to. I don't think our conversation about the voices points to that being wrong, but it does point to this it being a hard thing for the Lord Ruler to sort out if there was a good, you know, it's like, am I listening to the devil on my shoulder? Is there an angel on my shoulder? Am I doing the right thing? You know, yeah. very, very tough position to be in for the Lord Ruler. 
Yeah, man. And I love your description of sort of the, the apathy in a way that he had to have in order to preserve the world, mm-hmm. um, which makes so much sense. Love it. Okay. So the door opens and we'll get back to that in a moment here. <laughs> All right. That's that's kind of where the, the chapter ends. So with the door opening, but we'll get to Telden in that conversation in just a minute. Sounds good. So we go into chapter 49 here. We've got our logbook. One might ask why Ruin couldn't have used the Inquisitors to release him from his prison. The answer to this is simple enough. If one understands the workings of power. Before the Lord Ruler's death, he maintained too tight a grip on them to let Ruin control them directly. Even after the Lord Ruler's death, however, such a servant of Ruin could never have rescued him. The power in the well was a preservation, and an Inquisitor could only have taken it by first removing his hemallergic spikes. That, of course, would have killed him. Thus, Ruin needed a much more indirect way to achieve his purpose. He needed someone he hadn't tainted too much, but someone he could lead by the nose, carefully manipulating. I love that we get such a fascinating, deep description of Farrakimi here and how knowledge extracted leaves this void when it's placed back into the metal mines. The biggest use is transcription so that the data doesn't corrupt or wear down, you know, and like this idea that like you pull it in your mind and then you write it down really fast and then you <laughs> put it back in. I just love I, I think it's great. Yeah, I feel like in the past mm-hmm. I had pretty effectively and comprehensively picked up how this all worked. Good to have sort of actual confirmation and a little bit more concretely tied down mechanics of it. But my one question is still sort of the wear down mechanic that he describes. Is that described earlier about why it wears down? No, just that it does. I think it's because it's live basically. And he has to remember. Yeah. Yeah. And I also like the I like the idea of it wearing down beyond the actual technical capabilities or reasons that it happens. I like the idea of it wearing down because it makes it much more like a hard drive. And we've described ferrochemy in particular copper mines as very robotic and even like reacting in a robotic way. So it's it's just kind of a fun duplicate to me in that way and like a aligning of. You know, we've seen when T- when Tindwell and Sazed were going through their copper mines, they're, you know, just robots rigid and kind of just sitting there on the ground frozen when Ellen walked in back in the Well of Ascension. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I just enjoy that comparison. So I think it's important to point out Breeze and chat about him for a second. He's in much better place now than that he was at the end of the Well of Ascension. Uh, it almost feels like he's coming into his own as a person and as chuggy as it is living life to the fullest. Uh, I really like their conversation about Sazed's interest now that he's reengaged with his interest in learning and sort of esotericisms. I, th- I think is really great uh, to quote here. Sazed, how is it that you can be so wise in so many areas, yet be so completely stupid about this? A man is what he has passion about. I've found that if you give up what you want most for what you think you should want more, you'll end up miserable. This is maybe the most direct that Brandon speaks to the audience in any of any of these books. I think this feels like a direct thing that he pulled out of himself in this conversation even feels like him justifying why he should be a writer like in, in a way, right? Because if you drop that passion, even though there's so many other writers, there's so many other storytellers, so many other people could go and find stories anywhere. This feels like the argument against dropping the thing that you love and feels to me 
like the most direct out of the box sentiment yeah that's fair and i think it's more important than that textually as well which is kind of a sudden comparison that i'm being struck with yeah totally it's it's both i i have no problem saying that i just mean it also feels like the most direct out of audience address totally fair but Mm. specifically i'm kind of struck with the idea that this is likening how do I want to put this? This is kind of bringing up the fact that Sazed is a eunuch and he's constantly referring to himself as less than a man mm-hmm. and sort of mirroring that and extending that to a different definition of manhood. As as Breeze brings up saying, what is it? A man is what he is, what he has passion about. And if all of his passions are gone, it's sort of likened to that i could i could make that comparison i don't know i don't know that's just kind of yeah no i i think i think that this is a textually deep and rich thing to have thrown in here i think that it is i think that that's a great comparison too because it's like you aren't you aren't what you're like necessitated by society to be which is i think a great comparison to the manhood thing right like not being able like being a eunuch doesn't define him in the same way that like i know what you're going for i'm just trying to connect it to additionally i think we're probably good with what you said (laughs) yeah i i think it's less i I think it's more will be used as a motivation knowing that like that's something that's always in the back of his mind and that could be more motivation to bring back his his passions in much in the way that breeze wants him to yeah. But. Well, and right now he's he's trying to be something that he's not, right? Like I think that's the the other thing here is that he is he's trying to be logical like Tindwell would be to go through his religions and to like scrape through all of these things, which is killing his passions because he feels like that's the thing that he has to do versus instead being, you know, the esoteric and kind of engaged person he is with his metal minds. So mm-hmm. I think that feeds in. Yeah. Cool. All right. What do you make of both of them pointing to Spook and seeing reflections of who Kelsier was and how he behaved and acted? I think this is kind of a fun thing that pops up in this chapter. So I think it certainly makes a more complicated argument about whether or not Spook is actually being possessed by Kelsier here. What it potentially evokes for me, going under the assumption that it's not actually Kelsier and it's Ruin impersonating Kelsier for Spook, it makes me think about Chandra who are inherently of ruin because they are born out of hemolurgical spikes directly. And they are very, very good at observation and imitation because that's what they do. Like that is straight up what they do. So I don't think it's far fetched to believe that ruin would be able to very convincingly emulate Kelsier in mannerisms, even as a specter. You know, it's funny to me. I'm so glad you brought Condra into this. And this is something that I feel like I can address now that you've said it out loud, which is important. And that's often how I make decisions about whether or not I can say something textually. Or Sword Tensoon in the last book made very clear that they believe that they are of preservation. Oh, that's a good point. I had completely forgotten about that. But yeah, they do make that clear. Yeah. Because that's when they first bring up preservation. You are of preservation. You are of ruin. I am of preservation. And we are factually finding that to be the opposite as we, we've been working through the book with our hero here. Yeah. 
Huh. Hmm. You can chew on that nugget, but I I do really I really appreciate that complexity that you brought to this thinking about the idea of him potentially being possessed by Kelsier and like how that, you know, lines up. Could it be Kelsier? Could it be ruined? Is there another angle here? And it does make for an interesting argument that it isn't just, you know, our boy ruined. Mm-hmm. Our boy. Spook brings up something really interesting here. He posits that the noblemen are immune to the mists. What do you make of this? And this is 115% a prediction. Yeah, I, I think it has to do with the fact that noblemen are all of a lineage that have the potential to be allomancers. Based on like our current understanding, how it's been laid out for us so far, everything's getting shook up. Who knows? But the like that seems to be the case mm-hmm. so i think it's probably related to that whatever is giving well it's the lineage we know from from eating the nuggies their their shared ancestors eating nuggies gave them the possibility of being alamancers and i think that mm-hmm. is also giving them immunity from whatever is happening in the mists okay great that's a prediction Sweet. Okay, cool. That's it. That's that's what I needed. That's what I wanted. I think you were very clear cut. So the idea here is that they are immune because they have already because they're allomantically attuned mm, attuned. Yeah, that's that's a good word for it. Cool. I dig that. Sweet. Mm-hmm. Moving on. Beldra show belt. I keep saying this differently each time. Bel- Beldra. Bel- I think it's Beldra. Right. Did I say it differently before? Belidra. Beledra. Beledre. <laughs> I think I said Beldra. <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> so Belle shows up uh, and when she does, it's very curious. All things considered, <laughs> she's got an odd air about her begging to have the life of her brother spared. All Rianne says she doesn't like her. There's there's kind of a lot of different things that go on in this moment. But what would you make of her showing up here and getting away from her brother to kind of have this talk? I, I can't get a read on her. I really can't pin anything on her at this point. I'm not sure. There's something weird about it. I think this is also the point where Alrianne points out that they're clearly nobles. Like, not just of noble lineage, but just straight up nobles based on how softer hands are. You're right. <laughs> so, I don't know. I, I really don't have a good read on Bell yet. <laughs> I'm glad that you were laughing while I was trying to get through the question when I just simplified it to Bell, because often that's what I'll do instead of trying to repronounce something is like, hmm, let's go with a nickname just like Kelsier. So all I'm saying is, is the K's, the K's are in for nicknames. Yep. As I just nicknamed myself. Anyway, I don't, I don't know what's going on. Sometimes it's just chaos. I'm, I'm shocked you didn't comment on Ariane's comment. <laughs> the, she's like, I don't like her. And then Breeze goes, well, you don't like competition, sweetie. <laughs> Oh, I forgot. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. What's Breeze um, going to do? <laughs> <laughs> You're suggesting that He's Breeze... suggesting. Fair point. <laughs> I mean, I... Oh, God, I just have to stop giggling to maybe get through this idea. <laughs> that is... Yeah, no, I, I can't even... I can't even try to parse it. But we're we're just going to leave... We're going to... We've been leaving a lot of grenades on the ground today. We're going to leave that one right where it was. (laughs) Cool. All right. With that, let's get into chapter 50 here. 
we've got our logbook, of course. One can see Ruin's craftiness in the meticulousness of his planning. He managed to orchestrate the downfall of the Lord Ruler only a short time before Preservation's power returned to the Well of Ascension. And then, within a few years of that event, he had freed himself. On the timescale of gods and their power, this very tricky timing was as precise as an expert cut performed by the most talented of surgeons. Yeah, so this is kind of... Part of what we had referenced a few times throughout the uh, the episode already, but lots to juggle. But also, he's had a thousand years to plan this precise moment. So he, it was a very surgical strike, as it's mentioned, but at the same time, there was a millennia of planning that went into it. So it's kind of, it's kind of both. It just needs to have that perfect storm of of characters that he can manipulate yeah it could be a more perfect storm yeah and i i think that the idea here is that he had a thousand years and he planned and that is very precise because a god lives forever in theory question mark and so that that leaves an interesting kind of statement there what another revelation another thing i just remembered Hmm. vin took out her earring before getting into the well just happened to take it off but it wasn't like it wasn't a compulsion, right? I got to go check the book. You can continue with your theory. Well, I mean, the theory is that it's a hemallergic spike and couldn't be. Sorry, this is like off the wall. I just thought about it randomly. So it's not related to anything we're just currently talking about. But there was the, the reason why the Alam- or the Inquisitors couldn't couldn't come save Ruin was because they'd have to take out their spikes. But she can obviously take out her spike if that's the case that's true because it's not life or death for her right right because it won't she won't drop dead once she removes it but i remember commenting on like why did she take off her earring and why did he make such a like a an obvious point to say so but not like give a reason why that seems interesting doesn't it Hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. does it say anything about a compulsion it just says she takes it off i'm pretty sure yeah no no compulsion or no explicit stated compulsion. She's not being told by someone. Is that what you're intending by a compulsion? I mean, not verbally, but there could be an like Reen's not whispering. Is what I mean here. Like that's yeah, right. Yeah. But there could be like there's something inherently instinctive about her taking it off. If that's the case, right. which I would attribute to a compulsion of some sort. It feels disingenuous to say that there isn't something compelling her. But it's not stated. No, (laughs) it is. Damn it. (laughs) Okay, well, the words are in the previous section, so this is fine. With a sudden flare, her earlobe began to hurt. She cried out, pulling her earring free, dropping it into the depths. Hmm. I don't remember that. Like, I I get that it's there, but I don't remember that being. That's so unfortunate that I just gave you that information then. (laughs) No, no, no. I I mean, like, I remember having a conversation about it with you, Mm -hmm. talking about, like, me not realizing why she took it off because it felt to me that it was just she decided to take it off and they commented on it and that was that as opposed Mm. to it hurting her but i could be just entirely misremembering that conversation from the jump so i'm not sure yeah she's wondering why it's hurting right and so she takes it off before well while she's in the well technically she stepped into it right cool I mean, it's not that you like you gave me the the exact. No, I didn't. I didn't reveal anything. Yeah, you didn't reveal anything to me. 
it it did feel very disingenuous to sit here and say it's not compelling because she is compelled by pain to remove it. She's not compelled by someone though, which is what I was trying to pick at. Gotcha. She's not told to do it. And yeah, because it hurts her. Mm-hmm. The way I remembered it in my mind was that she took it off and like set it like setting an, an earring next to a, the pool, <laughs> like taking off jewelry mm-hmm. and setting it like next to the hot tub before stepping in. Well, because she does take off I her sash. She does yeah. take off her sash and other stuff, but she mm-hmm. does not take out the earring until she actually steps in. Cool. Yeah. Ah, all right. So with that, we go into the rest of chapter 50 here. Vin in the basement with Teldon, Ellen's friend, is just such a great moment. I love that it's Teldon, of course. But this is really her first time meeting one of his friends. <laughs> it's a bad first meeting, don't you think? Yeah. <laughs> not a great... <laughs> Not a great situation to meet her friend in or his friend in. But there is the comment about how Ellen was the only one that cared about the ska. And they all disagreed or just didn't give it the same sort of weight as Ellen did. Mm -hmm. And that I feel like goes against what we've known about them, especially the conversations with Josties and how like they seemed to actually share that philosophical ideal and maybe it was just this guy just Teldon that disagreed and attributed that to everyone else as well or maybe Ellen was just reading the room entirely wrong the whole time but from what we had from the the interactions we've had in the past this feels like a departure from our understanding Teldon specifically back in the first book is a little bit apprehensive about what Ellen's saying and is one of the friends that pushes back in the scene where the five where we're in his his perspective for a moment or I think maybe where is it in his perspective or is it in Vin's and she's listening at the window either way one of those two regardless he he kind of pushes back a little bit more i think there's an argument to be made though that jossies took everything that ellen said more seriously once the lord ruler was dead and that's why he went the way that he did and kind of like took the action seriously of like freeing and doing these specific things and then it ended up in rebellion and being betrayed so yeah i i think there's there's an argument there that it might have been Teldon and maybe a couple and maybe jossies was listening more intently this gets into that whole like applied philosophy versus just having a discussion thing like having a discussion does not equal you know your belief or your faith on something you know it's just it is a position that you've decided to debate or take in a moment to discuss something so mm-hmm. maybe they weren't taking it all the heart entirely and it was yeah like you said ellen reading the room wrong okay but they obviously didn't rat him out. So, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Talk and drink. You know, they're still they're still having a good time. And I'm sure this wasn't the only thing on their mind. They were talking about ways that they would change the government and other things. Not just the Scott, but it was Ellen's fascination that led him to where he is. Mm-hmm. So I also really love the verbal jousting here and the sort of really deep intelligence and honesty of Teldon in this section being like just upfront with literally everything and as clear a communicator and negotiator as possible. It reminds me in some ways of like police negotiations where you have the good cop in the room. It's not that this is a good cop conversation or anything like that. I don't want to make that allegory, but at the very least it feels very upfront, honest. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what you have on the table. Here are your choices. And I I love it. It's a very different character. Yeah, it's straight up. But at the same time, he doesn't need any deception. He doesn't need to be, no, she is mm-hmm. truly. She is without choices, without options, really. 
in this moment. Yeah. yeah. And I, I really appreciate that Vin does have this idea of how to handle and tackle the wines, right? To, to drink and push a drown in pewter burn to hopefully overcome the effect. At the same time, her body casually burns pewter. Wouldn't it be better to casually burn it over a long period if she was passed out and like maybe recover faster? You know, it's a wash. She was trying to beat it up front. So, so it makes me think that this is almost a chemical reaction. In, in the way that the amount of pewter versus the amount of poison is directly mm-hmm. related and they will neutralize each other and whichever one has more is going to win out. So it, sure. it doesn't okay. matter whether or not she burns it quickly or slowly, but if she burns it quickly, she stays conscious as opposed mm-hmm. to like falling unconscious and letting it slowly dissipate. Yeah. And I guess there is a question of like, could it be mixed to some degree with something, some metal like aluminum or like it could be aluminum, like, you know what I mean? To burn off all the metals or burn off a specific metal. Like you said, I think that's a great point. It It is like a story. It is like stoichiometry in the way that it would be like mm-hmm. an, an equation that you could really figure out uh, as to how these chemicals balance. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Is poison something other than the poison that we know? Like, is that somehow slightly allomantic as well? Probably not. That gets yeah. too complicated. And I don't know. Yeah. Just, I mean, it makes sense. I'm not. Yeah. I get it. I get it. Cool. All right. With that, we end the week. Do you have any? Do you have anything else in this chapter? I, I think that this is a relatively short, simple chapter. We we get introduced to tell. Well, not introduced, but Vin is introduced to tell then. And, you know, we kind of. It goes pretty quick. I mean, it's really just a. How do you get out of the situation? You can't. All of your, you know, we, you are in checkmate and we are giving you an option that will, at the very least, ensure you survive. Would you like to live? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's exactly what this is. Mm-hmm. And she, she runs through all the scenarios of like, well, I could kill everybody here. Like, but, but she knows. What does that get you? She knows that doesn't actually get her anywhere. Mm-hmm. It is. It is a f- fun. It's a reveal, I think, about sort of the inner workings of Vin to a certain extent mm-hmm. that she recognizes that if she thought it would help her, she would have killed everybody in the room, despite what Teldon presumes. Yeah, totally. You're. Yeah, it, it does bring up like she's like, you wouldn't kill and it's like, I will kill if necessary in, in her own head, which I think is a great, it's a great thing to rely on too, because while she's explicitly said a couple of times that she isn't Kelsier, this is a reminder that she does acknowledge that sometimes there's credence in that path. You know, we have Gorodel still alive at this point and definitely a, a big at this point. I just painted this man with a tragedy, but the reason that he lived <laughs> is because she didn't behave like Kelsier. You know, the world's ending. Everyone's going to die. Right. But Yeah. So with that, anything else you want to add? I don't think so. Any other thoughts? Okay. So ending this week, once Rune was free from his prison, he was able to influence people more strongly, but impaling someone with a hemologic spike was difficult, no matter what the circumstances. To achieve such things, he apparently began with people who already had a tenuous grip on reality. Their insanity made them more open to his touch, and he could use them to spike more stable people. Either way, it is impressive how many important people Ruin managed to influence. King Penrod, ruling Luthadel at the time, is a very good example of this. 
Is this insinuating that Penrod is has a tenuous grasp on reality? Is that the insinuation, or is it insinuating that Ruin is able to control important people like Penrod, or is it both? Like it, it's it's not super clear to me what the operator is on this last sentence. Could you suggest that maybe the strife of the time could be causing a tenuous grip on reality? Could could that work as a I rationale? Could, I could I could rationalize it that way. I, I feel like that's kind of the split that he's going for here. But I think that or rather they are going for here. The the writer, Brandon, you know. I think that's what he wants in this text, but I think that that's more to point back at Zane and Vin than to point to Penrod necessarily. That said, I think that saying that he's stressed and, you know, Mm -hmm. the thing is, if you see visions and you know that you shouldn't be seeing visions, you're kind of like, the fuck is this, right? You've got that very intense, like, no way kind of energy. I I think another thing to point out on the insanity front mm-hmm. is Kelsier constantly called himself insane. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's more things to think of. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, with that, <laughs> usually we would end, but we actually have predictions that we're going to read that I, I want to read at the very least to go through them. So we're going to move into PJ's predictions here or PJ's previous predictions, as I have it titled now, but we will be paying them off in mass once we are back to drinking in August, <laughs> our <laughs> penultimate episode. So that'll be fun. Previous predictions here. So we cut to Zane for a second. He mentions the voice, the voice in his head. God had never tried to convince him to kill her, but God does speak to Zane in those last few moments and lets him know that he wasn't insane. What moment? And you said. Uh, it just sucks that we don't get more of that here. I'm assuming we'll get more of this character somehow, maybe through that spike. But oof, such a great close. Why did you have to say through the spike? I was so <laughs> irritated in this moment. I remember it distinctly. And I was like, you bastard, because <laughs> you're right. And we do get more. All right. Sweet. Well, that's really the only one to pay off then. I swear to God, there were two. But I'm drinking for the one when we drink again. So... I have been schooled. All right, cool. With that, next week, we are going to be reading chapters 51 through 58. 51 through 58. And that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you, of course, to our producers, Tim and Andrew, for helping us keep the show going. Thank you to everybody that stopped in and listened to us for this little bit of a live show. Very last minute, we started recording. We're like... You want to just jump into the other channel and do it live? Anybody who wants to can. We do, we've done this a couple times now. If you join us at patreon.com slash words and whiskey, you would have the opportunity to do the same. But if you check out our show notes, you'll find all the links to our schedule, Patreon, previous episodes, websites, social media accounts, all in one very convenient location. 
Yeah, and absolutely, you can find us on all of the various social medias, like PJ was saying, Words Whiskey Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, Words and Whiskey Show at gmail.com, patreon.com forward slash Words and Whiskey, t-shirts on TeePublic. Follow the link. Beyond that, make sure that you leave all the podcasts that you love so much a review. It's actually a really big deal. It feeds into the algorithm. PJ and I were just chatting right before about this, and we've seen a substantial increase in the amount of Apple listeners recently, and... That's in part because of reviews. It all it all impacts that ratio in which we get related to other shows and whatnot and recommended. So any anything and everything that you can do for all the podcasts that you love and support, leave them a review. Thank you so much for your support, everybody. 